stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm joined in studio by Greg Nicholson. Greg, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Kingsley. It's been a while, man. I just wanted to start with something a bit exciting, man. That that song, that's K9, Wave Your Flag, we just played. It always reminds me of 2010 World Cup. Man. Fantastic memories. Man, I just remember the Vuvuzelas, the excitement. It's, you know, it, it just feels, really feels me with this, this proudly South African spirit. The question is, are you still proud <laughs> after the allegations in the Hollywood style FBI bust? FIFA officials last week. I love, I love how you saw it because you, you really saw it as these like mafia bosses, these European bosses from out of Taken Two in <laughs> Zurich and Switzerland. I don't know. I feel like it's just not a bunch of I don't know, like normal guys, accountants, sort of just you know. I think it's. I think I see it that way because the way the the FBI and I think it was the U.S. Attorney General hyped it up. You know, it makes it seem like they they got these guys at six a.m. in the morning in a Zurich Zurich host, uh, hotel. And, you know, the way I see it is I imagine them smoking cigars still up all night, throwing money at strippers or something <laughs> like that, you know? It did kind of feel like that. I'm trying to find the quote you tweeted, but the, the attorney general had this great press conference you were talking about. And it was just completely epic, man. There were just like all these puns about red cards and, and putting the, what did they say? Something like pulling the red card on corruption. They're, they're, all, all, all of the, the yeah. language they used around the arrests and indictments yeah. were football metaphors. It was like, I think some, some, some of the US authorities have gotten so Hollywoodized, I guess, that everything they do is almost like made for movies, you know? It's just, they're, they're, they're living real life scripts as they act. But it was, acted, but it was dramatic. Absolutely, man. For everybody tuning in, as you've guessed, we'll be spending the first half hour of our show talking about all the corruption and bribery allegations at FIFA. So we had some of the top officials being arrested by, by, by European police. And, and, and this has actually sort of started coming home to South Africa. And there's, there's questions around what does this mean for the World Cup we hosted in 2010? And, 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 and is it possible that South Africa actually bought the rights to hold the World Cup? Um, through, through illegal channels, of course. And was it value for money if we did buy it? I mean, that's, I mean, that's something I'm quite interested about talking about. I mean, it sounds terrible to say the corruption was, was valid. But when we stop back and think about it, in terms of the jobs created for the country, in terms of the, the economic boost in terms of the, the, the prestige and the global prestige, is it, was it worth it for South Africa? And that canine moment, the national cohesiveness Man, that, that everybody <laughs> seems to look back on like it was a golden time of South African society and relations, a 95 moment, you know? I mean, and that's what we were talking about. I think there was these links to the 95 World Cup and, and, and how that's held up as such a glorious moment for the Rainbow Nation. And, and maybe we were just trying to relive that in 2010. Just trying to search for it again and just, just put it on repeat. Um, we'll be talking shortly to, uh, to Antoinette Mueller from, from the Daily Maverick, who's been writing extensively on this. Um, I'm just trying to see if we can get her on our Skype line. Antoinette, are you here? I'm here. Fantastic. Antoinette, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Okay, I'm just getting the volume right. Now, Antoinette, you've been writing a lot about this. And, and to be honest, I've been getting lost, lost amongst the details. Could you just give, an, give us an update on where we are with the FBI arrests and indictments and, and what's going on? Well, I've actually also, um, I've just been out for a while and I just came back, back home and I've just seen that there's actually a letter that has now surfaced, uh, from 2009. Yeah. Written by the South African, uh, South president at the time, addressed to Jerome Falk, actually authorizing the 10 million US dollar payment to be paid from the fund of the local organizing committee 
to the diaspora legacy program, as they call it. So in, in technical terms, South Africa have actually admitted that there was 10 million US dollars that went from the local organizing committee to somewhere where it wouldn't be or where it shouldn't have been. And these these accounts, of course, are allegedly controlled by Jack Warner, who's a very dubious man and has been for quite some time and good friends with uh, Chuck Blazer, who's otherwise known as, you know, he's sort of a, a comedy former soccer dad. And, and again, it sounds, everything sounds very Hollywood. So to be honest, at the moment, having just come in and seen the state, I'm also a bit lost. Um, but in, in basic terms, a bunch of people were arrested. <laughs> US, um, the US Attorney General and the US Justice Department have a charge sheet that's about 196 or 164 pages long. Um, and they, it's all just allegations at the moment. They haven't gone to court. None of these allegations have been proven in the court of law. And it's now the legal process that has to start. And can you just just tell us about these allegations and and how the FBI went about investigating this stuff against FIFA? Uh, well, as everyone know, uh, for a long time the FBI has been investigating them. Uh, the investigation spans about three years, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it goes into corruption that spread for about two decades. Uh, and the big turning point came when Chuck Blazer, who is the man uh, who has two Trump Tower apartments. One exclusively for his cats. Um, he, was he has an apartment for his cats. Yeah, this, did you just yes, say? Let's pause there. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. So it's it, it's a shame. I I don't want to you know speak too too ill of the man. He yeah. is himself very gravely <laughs> ill and he has colon cancer and he's in hospital at the moment. But yes. So Chuck Blazer is a former U.S. soccer administrator. He I wouldn't say single-handedly, but he played a massive role in commercializing and revolutionizing soccer in the United States, and he went from sort of being a, a soccer dad to being an integral uh, part of the, the U.S. soccer administration. And he was about to be arrested um, for uh, avoiding tax a few years ago. And I think he was, from what I remember, this happened, sort of the story came out last year, he was mm. going around on his mobility scooter mm. um, from his apartment, having probably just fed his cats where he keeps them in, in their own Trump Tower apartment. Um, and he faced massive jail time, and he entered into a plea bargain with the FBI, saying, "Okay, um, I'm going to go to jail. I'm screwed. Okay. Uh, but in, in an attempt to help you with your investigation, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll assist you, and, and I'll go a bit further. And through uh, the FBI's investigation, he le- allegedly wore a wire during the 2012 London Olympics recording some conversations with FIFA officials, and that all formed part of their investigation. So this has been going on for three years, and the timing of the arrest was just really just quite convenient. And like Greg said earlier, it does, you know, I have pictures in my brain of not quite as vivid as his um, or as bad as his. I, I sort of saw, uh, saw people wearing Tom's tank engine pajamas and being all... <laughs> You know, chucked out of bed, having cuddled their, you know, snuggle bunny they've had since they were seven years old or whatever, being chucked out of their hotel beds in a very posh hotel in Zurich. Um, it was just convenient because everyone was there at the time. So having all these officials that uh, the FBI wanted to talk to and the Swiss authorities wanted to talk to all together in the same place at the same time, it was just a convenient time to carry out these arrests. Okay, Antoinette, thanks so much for that update. We'll be we'll be calling you back in just a second. We're having some trouble with the Skype line. Okay. Okay.
Greg, I mean, there's something that you, that you you wanted to mention is what's is is, is why why is the FBI involved with this at all? That's something that I was confused about. I'm just like, sure, I thought the FBI is like is focused on a lot bigger fish, and and why, what are they doing in football? No, I don't know if they're focused on a lot bigger fish. These are these are quite big fish, you know. But I think the thing is. The jurisdiction of the FBI is a lot of uh, what some people are sort of questioning, considering that uh, these arrests took place in Zurich with uh, mostly international um, representatives from FIFA. But what happened was these FIFA officials who who have been indicted were transferring these funds, which are allegedly bribes, through the United States banks. And so because of that, um, under American law, you can sort of uh, open up indictments and, and, and prosecute if any um, of the anything to do with the crime has gone through the United States. So if the funds went through U.S. banks, then the the Americans can charge you and investigate it. Okay, that makes more sense. And I know a lot of the, I know a lot of the, the, the money being siphoned was actually going, going through, I think, Bank of America and some of the big banks on that side. I think so, which, which makes you wonder about whether some of these banks were, were involved or knew what's going on. You know, you would have expected them to send it to sort of offshore secret accounts, you know, in Switzerland or, or so the Bahamas or something that's like a, that. I mean, that's how I thought it always goes. But yeah, but then I, I, I guess it's, and it's not only the, this, Indicting these FIFA officials, mm. I think, is not only uh, a sign against um, fo- corruption in football, but also uh, a suggestion that that uh, corruption in business will also be punished. I mean, that's that, that's really something I'd like to talk more about, especially on the South African front. Antoinette, I think we have you back. Are you with us? I think I'm back. Fantastic. This is much better. Now, Antoinette, thanks for giving us that backstory. Thanks for giving us the backstory. I think it now makes sense. So it sounds like somebody gets caught and they're like, okay, I know I'm going to jail. I'm going to write out... You know, all my co-conspirators seems to be the word of the day. Now, now, could you give us sort of the link with where South Africa comes in? And you mentioned this a bit before, and the figure ten million dollars came up a few times. So, how does the the allegations from the from the U.S. Justice Department at, at FIFA how does that now come into play with the 2010 World Cup here in South Africa? Right. So, according to the indictment, and actually as has been proven mm. and admitted by Danny Ordan, um, when the bidding started for the um, 2010 World Cup, uh, these things happen, gifts happen and handshakes happen and all of these things happen. If there were, when Germany won 2006 bid, there were allegations that they were corrupting the bid. So all of these things, it's just something that, that does happen. So the indictment alleges that South Africa paid two amounts. One, which was apparently paid in a suitcase um, in stacks of uh, however many hundred dollar bills the value of 10,000 US dollars mm. um, before the bid. So long before this was, I don't know if this was to prove that, yeah, we're in to give you money um, or, or what the exact situation around that amount was. But this was paid to a co-conspirator who's good friends with Jack Warner again. Um, and it sounds like it was probably Chuck Blaze who picked up that, that amount of cash. Um, but then later on, uh, Morocco was trying to bribe uh, Jack Warner and they offered him a million U.S. dollars. And so that's what actually said previously, that no, we'll get the government to pay you 10 million U.S. dollars, Jack Warner. Um, and they they didn't actually end up doing that, the government themselves, but they took the money that was meant to go to the local organizing committee and paying for, you know, things that go with hosting a football World Cup, um, and they diverted it. So basics of money laundering, uh, there's a fund that, that's there to go to something. And so actually, no, 
take some of that money and spend it somewhere else that's completely legitimate that will still show that it's a clean audit um, and just send it to someone who, who has control over those accounts. In this case, it was Jack Warner. So if, if anybody, and I think Ms. Honorable Minister Fakile Mabalula um, did mention last week that, you know, that they got a clean audit, and that's absolutely correct, because in the way that it was done, every auditor looks at it will give whoever's you know, involved a clean audit because it was done so cleverly. But the best part of this is that South African, in their genius of, um, you know, corruption, if you want to call it that, mm. it's alleged, um, they actually just shanked FIFA and they just used FIFA's own money to pay this bribe that they have been called. So, and it, it seems that you definitely believe that this bribe was paid um, because you've seen Fakila Mbalula and uh, Danny Yordan have both denied that there was any sort of bribing or corruption involved. But do, 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 you, do you give their defences any weight at all? Um, it's depending what their definition of bribe is, I suppose, because the evidence is here. I'm looking at the letter um, that was sent to... Mr. Falk in 2008, and it says, take, take 10 million US dollars and pay it to from the local organizing committee and pay it to this, this for a legacy program run by Jack Warner. So there is no denying that money exchanged hands between the two parties. Hmm. Um, on what basis that happened is, I guess, what the FBI and what court proceedings will have to establish because we don't know. But, you know, it's this is how things work, not just in football, but also in business. Mm. You know, you have to hustle. And if South Africa felt that this was their best way of hustling, then, you know, then that's, that's what they did. A nation of hustlers, huh? <laughs> but yeah. it... it, it... It seems quite interesting that I think this $10 million, which is now clear that someone, $10 million, did change hands at South Africa's request. Mm. But I wonder, because I've seen this letter as well, and it just seems odd that if the, if South African football, if we're going to donate $10 million, you know, to this, to this fund, why, why would we request it to go through FIFA? It seems so strange that we couldn't, if it was a legitimate payment, why, why couldn't we just pay it ourselves? So it does look like something, they're clearly trying to hide something. Well, yeah, trying to hide something and, like I said, trying to shine FIFA because this, was, this wasn't Safa's money to begin with. It was FIFA's money. So they thought, well, hang on a minute. We're not going to take any of our money that we earned and pay it over. We're just going to take the money that belongs to FIFA anyway and give it to someone else. So mm. that is, mm. I suppose, a legitimate way of doing it. So it looks clean, but like I said, there's always that dubious energy and why, why, why are you just randomly paying yourself to someone that's not involved in organising a World Cup and why aren't you, if there is a legacy fund that you want funds distributed to, why are you not doing that after the World Cup once you've set up that legacy fund? Mm. What do you think the chances of a South African being indicted um, for for this payment is? Uh, is there any sort of chance? Well, that's a difficult question. I've sort of spent the last sister story trying to think about, you know, is it mm. possible and, you know, like how clean are they and, and so on. Um, part of me, almost, it depends on what Jack Warner said. So um, when this news broke, Jack Warner actually first vehemently denied his involvement once again and then he handed himself over to the police in Trinidad and then he said he was exhausted and he went to a political rally and he was dancing, he was actually fine. Um, so yeah, which is incredible, huh? <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> that, that, like the next day. 
Yeah, it, it doesn't sound real. None of this sounds real, and that's that's the most bizarre thing. Um, I suppose it entirely depends on whether he thinks like he's on Broadway and enters the plea deal, and then you know directly implicates South African officials, or whether he just keeps quiet and just says, "You're right. I'll I'll wait for you know legal proceedings to take their course and either get found out or not." I mean, it sounds like a lot of it really hinges on you know how much he's willing to say to to save himself jail time. It sounds like it. It's what? Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm just saying. It depends on. It sounds like a lot of it just really rests on Jack Warner, <laughs> and how much he's willing yeah. to to spill the beans yeah. to save himself jail time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a long. It's something that's carried on for so long, and I think that in some people's mind, it was just normalized for so long. That now that it's all come out, it's a bit like, hmm. Well, maybe we've convinced ourselves in the back of our minds that what we're doing was completely cool, but it's actually not. You know. Yeah, it really is surreal. It really is surreal. I think my question is, we've been hearing about corruption at FIFA. Maybe not at this level, but we've been hearing about it for some time. So it's, you know, I don't think it's the biggest surprise that, that there's been dodgy dealings at FIFA. So for my, for me, my question is, is how does this keep going? Who's, who's voting these people into power? How has Seb Blatter been in power so long despite continuous allegations of bribery and corruption. So could you just give us an idea on, on how he stays in power? And who he's, like the, he's like the Mugabe of sports officials. Yeah, like, like who's supporting this guy? Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, Seth, uh, love him or hate him, he is a genius politician and he knows exactly how to play the game. Um, and since he took over in 1998, um, he has done tremendous work for the game in Africa and in Asia. And what he has done, one, increasing South Africa's participation from three to five, I think, and setting up tremendous grassroots goal projects across the world, specifically in developing nations like Africa and Asia. Um, and those kinds of things, the money that's being fired into that and taking away uh, the game away from the Eurocentric vision that it had for years before him um, and before sort of 1974, uh, that wins enormous loyalty because emerging from colonialism 20 years ago, many of these African nations felt like they were always going to have to fuck around the hind teeth of footballing equality. Um, and when somebody in power gives you the opportunity to be part of making global decisions, because a vote in FIFA, everyone gets votes count the same. So whether that's, you know, whether you have 10,000 people living in your country in Little Island somewhere, or whether you have 15 million people living in your country somewhere in Europe, your vote is equal to everyone else. Um, and for everyone voting for that, specifically from the African and Asian part, Expect the devil you know and the devil you don't. So um, there might be some fear that if they if sex gets voted out, um, it will go back to the way it was before, where Europe has the lion's share of profits, they have the lion's share of participation spots at the World Cup, and uh, this grassroots funding that we don't know whether it's always going to the right places. But um, there might be some fear that these projects might disappear if the support for black is stopped and. Whoever takes over from that is not going to be able to do that without his endorsement. Um, and that's why whoever challenges him will have to, you know, you'll have to say, he's all right, he can take over from me, both for him, because that has played a, an incredible political game since it took over uh, almost 20 years ago now. I mean, you're right. It's, it sounds like, in, in me just reading his track record, it sounds like he's done... Actually, what is looks like really great work in terms of rolling out the uh, the, the, the football, uh, not rolling out the football, but rolling out global football into into places where 
they really wouldn't have gotten that kind of spotlight. So places like Southeast Asia, places like the Caribbean, places like Africa. So I think my question, Antoine, is, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it to have somebody that we know is corrupt? But at the same time is, 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 is really expanding the game to, to everyone. Make sure everyone can enjoy it. Make just from a purely utility perspective. We're all enjoying the game. I'm sure some, some communities and countries that were not seeing any profits are getting some. So, I mean, do, would you say it's worth it? Is it worth it? Yeah. No, but it's, it's also not <laughs> worth having someone take over who's going to marginalize and the country, you mm. know. So, FIFA needs to be reformed. Of course it does. It's, like you said earlier, it's been corrupt for however long, and it's been okay for it to be corrupt for far too long. But reforming it needs to happen holistically and across the yeah. board. Yeah. And it, it can't happen with a Eurocentric vision of saying, Europe, Europe is fine. Europe is okay. We're not corrupt. Yes, they are. There's immense corruption in Italian football and, you know, everywhere else in Europe. Mm. horrible racism happening across various, um, you know, institutions, associations across Europe, and UEFA aren't doing anything about it. So um, it's not worth having someone who's corrupt in charge, but it's just there's no other real leader that steps forward and says, you know what, I can do this and I have Africa and Asia and all the other developing nations interested at heart. I mean, I hear you. It's, it's, it's quite disturbing to see this corruption trend also in the in the leagues and, and in different different sports. But anyway, it's something we'll continue to watch. Antoinette, that's unfortunately all the time we have. Thanks for coming on and, and please keep up the great work in writing and reporting on this. No problem. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, Greg, something we were talking about a bit earlier is, is I'm not sure how to feel as a fan, to be honest, because... I, 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 I enjoyed the World Cup personally. I enjoyed it. And, and then this stuff came out. And I remember at the start, there was all these stories about how FIFA basically got special laws that were kind of, not kind of, but were pretty much unconstitutional in South Africa and how they were running the World Cup. And now the stories of corruption come out and we may or may not have paid $10 million illegally. So I don't know how to feel. Do I, should I feel robbed? I mean, it doesn't really feel like it's my money that went through. I suppose, in the long of it, it may be through my, you know, maybe a DSTV payment or something. But on the other hand, I just really enjoy the World Cup and I like, I really like football. So I don't know. <laughs> should I be pissed off? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's not my yeah, place to, okay. I guess, tell you if you yeah. should be pissed off or not. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I think it's interesting when you look at it because, so if we look at the most recent World Cup in Brazil, yeah. um, you know, there's the, I think the well-known example yeah. where they forced Brazilian the Brazilian government to change yeah. its laws to allow beer to be sold in in the stadiums. I think yeah. it was Budweiser, of course, yeah. which which was against the law at that time because I think they they'd been trying to stop it. And there were specific out, reasons why that was not yeah to, to rule out violence yeah. at, at, at football matches. Yeah. And they actually got them to change the law and create this sort of beer law. Yeah. And I think that's one symbol of the processes the the FIFA uses when it comes into a country. It's almost like a you know how we're always or a lot of people in South Africa and, and developing countries as well, uh, really hating on these global um, powerhouses yeah. like the United States and and Europe and things like that, or, or institutions like the IMF and World Bank for coming in and yeah. setting these policies and forcing um, countries to go in directions yeah. that may not be to their benefit. It reminds me of that in a little way because the processes they go about things are horrible. They they run roughshod over local governments. Oh, yeah. But local the business, same, local well, yeah. business, 
And and the benefits, the financial benefits and economic benefit they bring to certain countries, if we're specifically specifically talking about the World Cup, is, yeah. is fairly questionable when you look at how much governments have to spend on infrastructure. Um, like if you look at South Africa, you know, there's the Hau train, yeah. the the freeway improvements, um, the the enormous cost of the stadium builds. But on the other hand, I think as a fan. That's it's a different thing. It's just a different like place. It's an emotional mm. one. It's it's, it's mm. fun. And so yeah. I think I think it is possible to look at back at the twenty world twenty ten World Cup and say, look, I had a great time. It was exciting having this event in the country. It was great. Going you know either going to the matches or going to a fan park mm. or just watching with friends at home or in a bar, and. You know, all of those little things, like people wearing their jerseys, was it on a Friday or whatever? Yeah, it was Bafana Friday, that <laughs> yeah. Thing, yeah. And, and little things like that, and that sort of excitement and buzz, um, around the country and showing the world that South Africa can put on a, a world class event. Yeah. Um, having, having the opportunity for Bafana Bafana, um, to perform, uh, with the best teams in the world and being able to support them there. Um, I think having South Africa be the center of the world's attention is, and, and not to mention being able to watch some incredible football at stadiums, you know, not very far away yeah. that we can actually attend is, uh, is something that can be proud of and, 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 and look back on with fondness and I think, and great memories. But I think at the same time, I think taxpayers should be pissed. If, if there was corruption where effectively in this in- intricate deal, um, where $10 million, uh, you know, so in, in now's currency, sort of over 120 yeah. million odd rand yeah. was siphoned off from the South African yeah. fiscus, that's pretty fucking annoying. I mean, that could have gone to education. That could have gone to healthcare. I mean, that could have gone to anything. Could have just offset the cost, the, the, oh, just the national budget for that year. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for, to for, anything else. That's right. Like, and and when you also look at you know the the revelations that later came out that construction companies were colluding when they were when they were bidding for for to get tenders yeah. to build stadiums and for some of these World Cup infrastructures mm. and so they also charged the taxpayer more. Some of those things you have to sort of as a taxpayer and as a member of the South African nation or someone who lives here and someone who is you know concerned about issues of poverty, unemployment, uh, inequality, yeah. issues of you know your robots not working. Yeah. You have to be, I think, I think you need to be upset or at least questioning and being critical and demanding more information from this. And I've found it a little bit concerning that sports minister Fikile Mbulula was much, much, I understand why, but he, I think, was more on the defense. He went straight into the defense mode, yeah. um, rather than, rather than, I think he, he seems like he does want to take the, the claim, the claim seriously, but I would have liked to see him really come out and, and just say, if this happened, it's wrong and it's messed and up, it's and we're going to get to and the we'll bottom of this. Yeah. But I think he almost he sort of veered more towards Russian President Vladimir Putin's approach, which was it's a plot from the from the, from the Americans to discredit us and our successes. I mean, I hear you, and I I'm, I think you're right. There's just two separate issues, man. As a fan, we all had a great time, and Shabalalo scored the free kick, and it was fantastic. But but at the end of the day, you look at the numbers and it's not looking good. There are all these promises of jobs that will be created and, and that's, and that's been shown across 
many World Cups, not just South Africa's, that that doesn't really live up. Mm. And there's the cost of the stadiums and, and some ex-hosts such as uh, South Korea and Japan actually ended up taking down their stadiums because they just were too big for the country's normal use. So I think there's a lot of questions on World Cup hosting in general, even before you get to South Africa's. I've seen a lot of people that are yeah. just sort of on, on social media and yeah. chatting to some people who are just saying... Well, you know, $10 million well spent. <laughs> like, I still love the World I Cup. Love the World and, Cup. and even some people being, with all these uh, bribery allegations coming yeah. out, they're getting really defensive, saying it was still a great time. You can't take that away from us. Ish, you know? <laughs> man, I don't know where to start, man. But I think we'll just continue watching the story and, and we'll see if... If the FBI will give the red card to some of the South African politicians involved <laughs> yeah, with this. I'm just right. going to go into the break and we'll be talking education just after this with the spokesperson from Equal Education. Tune in to the Daily Maverick Show in just a couple minutes. Thank you. Good afternoon. You're now tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're just going to the second half of our show. I'm joined in studio by Greg Nicholson and Nombulelo Nyatela, the, the spokesperson for Equal Education. Nombulelo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Fantastic. So my, my, my thing is I really want to talk about the, a recent study published by Equal Education that, that, that surveyed a, a, a percentage of the schools in Gauteng. And it was really focused on key aspects of, of, of what's actually going on on the ground. So we hear, we hear a lot of, of stories around the quality of education and are there toilets, are there textbooks. So it's really great to have somebody actually go from school to school and be like, what's going on here? So Nambulela, I just want to ask about some of the key findings. I mean, from some of the reading, it's, some of the things sound, sound, sound pretty bleak, to be honest, where we have, where we have, you know, people, so many students sharing toilets, no, no, no sanitary pads or sanitation facilities, no toilet paper. So could you just tell us some of the main findings from, from the audit you conducted? Okay, so our, it's called a social audit and really it's powered by the community. Um, it was done by community members. It was, it was done by junior organizers really going into schools. Parents, I'm talking parents, grandparents, some learners themselves were doing these audits and that's why it's such a powerful tool to get people involved but also to understand because there's a person of education and they understand what government owes to them, like what are their rights when it comes to this. Well, that's fascinating. I just want to stay on that for a second. So it's a social audit and you've got parents, you've got learners actually auditing their own schools and communities. Grandparents, community. yeah. It's, and, and, and very sort of community organizations like Siddhimu Tando, which is really about disabled learners, mm. these are parents that started these organizations. Mm. That's what makes it so powerful. That's a really um, great sort of, I mean, we talk about grassroots and, and, and we talk about involving communities. I think abs- that's a very literal way to do it. Absolutely. We, we copied it from the SJC in Cape Town. Yeah. We did it with their toilets in, yeah. in Kailicha. But basically, we found that in about 30% of the schools, mm. 100 learners or more are sharing a single working toilet. Um, we audited 200 Crazy. schools. That's 10% um, schools of Khateng. the schools in Khaoping. Yeah. Um, those were the schools we audited specifically on, on, on sanitation. So, And then we found that one in five toilets um, was either broken, locked, or not working. We found that 40, in 40% of the schools... Um, the learners don't have any access to any sort of soap in their, in their, in their toilets. And, um, and then in 70%, in 70% of the schools, they also don't have access to any sanitary pads or any tissue. Um, so we found that really there is some sort of sanitation crisis in Gauteng. Yeah. And that's why, um, our, our campaigns in Gauteng have been focused on sanitation. But we looked at other indicators as well. So in 75 of the schools, the principals were allowing us to go into their classrooms okay. and to look at what the state was. And we found that in half of the schools, um, 50 learners or more are sharing uh, a classroom. These are classrooms that are built for about 30 learners or so. Um, so they, 
grossly under, um, overcrowded. Um, we found that, you know, in most of the classrooms, they either have a hole in the ceiling or a hole in the floor. Um, we found that um, there's a mass exclusion of disabled learners. Disabled learners can't access school because they don't have the infrastructure to access those schools. In 80% of those schools, um, there's a shortage of desks and chairs. So you will find learners either writing on their school bags, writing on their laps, um, or sharing or sharing seats. You know, sitting sitting on top of each other. Really. Um, I mean, so I mean, I'm a little sorry to stop you there, but it's just. It's really sounding quite bleak right now. You're talking about a hundred learners sharing a single toilet. There's holes in the floor. There's holes in the wall. I know this is just ten percent of the schools, but it's it sounds like from you know that the findings of the audio were quite were quite tough. Sorry, just Greg. just just to be clear on the numbers, yeah. is is this ten percent of all of Gauteng schools? Is it all public schools? Is it all township schools? Or like, is there any qualification on it's, that? It's ten percent of like all schools in Gauteng. So okay. we ordered to two hundred schools. Okay. Those two hundred schools represent ten percent of the schools in Gauteng. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, we can sort of approximate, you know. Um, obviously, it was important for us that we look at township schools and rural schools. How we came about yeah. those schools is that um, the MEC of Education had published a list to say that these are the schools that he was going to fix. These are the schools that are part of his sanitation plan. Mm. So when we approached the schools, we had them. We said, you see, you're on this list. And what we want to see is, has there been improvement? Because the minister promised that he's going to fix your toilets and he's going to make sure that you have enough toilets. And so we entered the schools um, with these lists and we showed them. And then they allowed us to sort of go okay. in and audit um, their sanitation. So it would be fair to say these are some of the the worst schools in terms of sanitation issues because they were listed for improvements, or is this would this be sort of a, a symbolic or representative of, of of a much wider trend? I suppose it is if you look at it the worst schools because in any case we know that Quintal one, two, and three schools, which are our township schools, are mainly. But if you look at other provinces, rural schools as well, these are the worst schools in Gauteng. These mm. are the schools that have infrastructure problems, infrastructure backlogs. I mean, of course, this spills out into many other things, including education outcomes. So even though we speak about infrastructure mm. alone, this affects the learners directly in their everyday teaching and mm. learning. That's interesting. So if there are a hundred students for one toilet. Yeah. What what can you explain that if the effect that would have on on someone's school outcomes? So it's actually quite. Um, we had at the at the audit summit one of the learners speak about this, and it's always important for us to have the learners yeah. um, sort of get their voices out there. The only reason they don't come onto the show now is because they're in class, but they are very well able to articulate this <laughs> themselves. They do it better that than I do. One of one of your colleagues actually <laughs> suggested we get a learner. Oh, in yeah, and I was great. thinking like. <laughs> Wouldn't listeners wonder, like, why isn't this kid in school? We should have done that. They're absolutely (laughs) brilliant. But this learner um, um, said, no, you know, the thing is, I stand in a queue for about 30 minutes Mm. to get to a toilet. Mm. Um, How this affects me is that sometimes I'm missing out on on class because it spills over. Even if I'm waiting at break time, it spills over into class time. And I have to choose between sitting in class and just, like, relieving myself. And there's learners who will tell you um, in their testimonials that, you know, if I'm on my period, I don't go to school because, mm. you know, it's just such an inconvenience. So girls miss out on quite a significant, mm. you know, um, 
school time. But this is around the country, not just in Khartoum. Mm. This is a general problem. And in terms of a time frame, that's like at least a few days a month, right? Yeah, that at is least. a few days a month, and in in a year, it's 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 a lot. Really in their up. school life, mm. it's it's quite a lot. Mm. But um, this speaks to their dignity as well. So these learners mm. um, who've been, for example, one of the exercises we did in Cape Town was take some of the learners to an affluent school closer to Table Mountain. Very nice school. Um, did they understand that this affects their dignity? They don't feel like um, they're taken seriously, like their education is taken seriously. Mm. So it's, it's a matter of dignity as well. It must but make also, it hard to be motivated too. Ex- exactly. But also if you're not comfortable in class, if you don't have a desk and a chair, um, like that's a problem. You know, that, that is a huge problem. You don't... You don't perform to your best. You don't perform to your optimum. And we know that these schools are also some of the schools that underperform, um, et cetera. And absolutely. I mean, I'm curious, what is the reaction of the M- of the MEC? So you do the social audit, you put it together, and you present it, I imagine, to, to his office and his team. And, and, and what does he say? He said he's going to roll out a sanitation plan. This doesn't sound like the results of a sanitation plan. So, so what, what happens now? So they are. So when we did, our, so this is our second audit. We did an initial audit um, okay. last year, mm-hmm. and I must say the results were far worse than the ones we found this time. So I think that there is some improvement. He pledged about 150 million rand after we had a 2,000 member strong march to his office. Okay, and um, he, that was the rollout of the sanitation. Of course, um, he has not met. He has not done everything in the time frame that he gave himself. But you know, we have to put pressure because. Because, um, you know, we can't, learners can't wait any longer. And so he's always said he's a champion of sanitation and he made some bold promises at our sanitation audit. Um, he did say. And this most recent one? Yes, at this okay. most recent one. He said, you know, the 50 worst schools is going to knock down their, by, by the time sort of they open after June holidays, um, he's going to be, have knocked down the 50 worst schools toilet blocks and built new ones. He said he's going to refurbish all matric classrooms with their ceilings and floors, etc. All matric um, classrooms. All matric classrooms. Okay. He, yeah, he made quite a few promises. He said um, he's going to uh, sort of remove, we're going to have smart boards in all the classrooms. I mean, he spoke quite a bit to this, but I think we asked him for a bit more. We said, you know, MEC... So you wanted more than the smart rooms <laughs> in all the classrooms. Well, I mean, we want him to sort of set a better standard, okay. for example, for the sanitation ratios. Yeah. Um, mm. The fact that, for example, in the norms and standards, so Hateng doesn't have problems like the Eastern Cape has problems. You know what I mean? At least we have access to water, we have access to electricity. So those are not the fundamental basics mm. he has to mm. deal with. It's about ratios rather exactly. than He can do more. Yeah. Exactly. So if he set a better standard for the learners, um, ratios in their toilets, but also, you know, he's made all the schools Section 21 schools. This means that schools can sort of budget for themselves and decide what they do. Now, in township schools, a learner is given 1,116 rand. That's what learners are sort of subsidized with in their schools. And because these are no-fee schools, they can't pay more. Parents don't have to pay a bit more. That's what a learner is given. But that money must cover everything for the year. Your main maintenance, if toilet paper, everything. That's the budget that is given per learner. And so principals are telling us they can't make that budget stretch. So that's the amount of money the school gets per learners. Yes. So if you had 100 learners, it's 100 times 1,100. Yes. Okay. yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And schools are, are then given that will sort of given that power to decide what they do, the money they can, you know what I mean? But principals have competing priorities. If they choose, have to choose between buying chalk for their many learners because their schools are overcrowded, mm. buying chalk or 
buying toilet paper or tissue. They're going to buy chalk. And so he needs to give them like a model. If he's saying that that money is actually enough, he must give us that model budget and oh, show how we arrived at this yes, figure. that it's enough. Do you, has equal education worked out or does it have any other suggested figure as to how much it does cost to adequately provide for learners? So if that 1,100 isn't enough, has equal education suggested, you know, maybe 1,500 per learner is the amount that they need? We haven't done that costing, but we can obviously approximate that it's a lot more. Okay. We imagine that, um, even learners in, so the learners in, um, in other schools as well, they get far less, but because their parents can top up the money. So there's um, a formula in mm-hmm. how it's worked out. And from the government point of view, the learners in townships and rural schools get more money. But what happens in the end is that actually they're still far lacking behind because even if you're giving a learner in um, one of the top public schools, um, 500 rand a month, they're still paying like a lot of maybe, I don't know, 10, 12,000 rand a year anyway. It's significantly topped up um, and they can afford all these things. They can afford better maintenance. They can afford to build more toilets. They can afford to, you know what I mean, to make things work. And so, I mean, we haven't done the exact costing, but I can tell you that principals are saying it is just not enough. We are struggling we're struggling to make the money straight. Hmm, it's not exactly a clear divide between urban and rural schools. I mean, for me, that's where the, the norms and standards would come into play and say, in this kind of environment is what is expected of you, in this kind of environment. But I see from your report saying that the plans to meet the norms and standards are still not public. Could yeah, you speak a bit about that, that makes us really upset. We are a very upset organization. Okay, just right the now. whole of equal education <laughs> is pissed off. Because this issue yeah. has been going on for years, We hasn't have it? been campaigning for five years Surely. for norms and standards. We finally got the law promulgated in 2013. So it's in law. So we, every the law, school the must have there, ABC. The law is there and it has c- certain time frames. Okay. And the first time frame was the plan. So the plans were submitted last year in November okay. 2014. Okay. Um, but the, the time frames run concurrently. It's not like after the year, then we start counting mm. again. So the year is over now. And the minister has had like a long time to look at the plans, longer than the president has had to look at the Farlum Commission, <laughs> in all honesty. And... Um, she still hasn't released the plans and we are worried that we have on the 29th of May was the halfway um, through the first time frame that sort of says in three years, in 2016, all schools without water, electricity, all schools made out of asbestos, mud, wood, um, steel. So basically all schools with inadequate infrastructure must be eradicated. And we mm. don't see how that is going to happen if we don't have plans. We don't have plans to hold anyone accountable. We don't know what the province's plans are. We are worried. So just can you just take us a step back? These plans are they plans submitted by schools that need to change their infrastructure, or what? Are, what? Are, what are the plans exactly? They're schools submitted by the MECs in the provinces. Mm-hmm. So they um, were supposed to tell the MEC how they, the minister, how they're going to meet these timeframes, how they plan to uh, make sure that they fix the schools, you know, um, within the certain timeframes, and um, we don't know how that's just going to happen if like they're not published communities can't hold them accountable but even the you know like they're not feeling confident that their situation is going to change at any point like they have nothing they have nothing to hold on to yeah it's it's concerning i mean it's i mean i'm seeing i'm seeing sort of a sharp contrast between the language and the the actions of the mec and what's coming from you i was talking to greg about a bit about this earlier and often the 
he seems on board with this idea that not enough is being done. We're talking about this yeah, week. and you yeah. mentioned seeing him in one of the marches, Greg. You just yeah, tell I that story. Much even. Yeah. He seems to be. Yeah, MEC, he yeah. seems to like like you're marching to his office, and he'll march with you. He's in the march thing. <laughs> we need better from government. It's like, and, and, and he also seems to have a lot of sort of. Uh, big plans, you know, he came out with this thing that has, that has infuriated some people, the idea of twinning schools. He also seems yeah. to have been pushing, um, uh, pushing, um, digital developments in the classroom, things like that. He, he had- He's really been getting a lot of headlines and he seems to be able to, to mediate some of the anger, um, against him. But, but, but is, are things working in practice? He does, um, I think he does get a bit upset with us because he feels he's a hardworking MEC and yeah. I think that he really is. There are some, have been some great rollouts from his office. Okay. The twinning of the schools is actually coming. Santon, there's a school in Santon and one in Alexandra that have, are already starting. So it started, it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening. Okay. Um, the minister is the one that's meant to release the infrastructure plan. So the, Angie Mutecha is the one that's meant to give us these plans and like, we don't know why she hasn't released them. Um, and, 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 and so this makes us a bit agitated. So the MECs gave her the plans on time on the 29th of November, mm. 2014. Um, and she had time to consider them. And like now we're here. MEC Banyazali Sufi in the Gauteng province, we must say, has, you know, always been open to meeting with us. He has marched with us and he was a little bit upset about the audit. But to be honest, you know, we contacted his office for quite a bit and he only replied when like 702 was like, listen, we're going to ask you now. <laughs> so um, there was a bit of pressure from our side, but um, we have to be honest. Obviously, we always get disappointed when yeah. um, government officials don't meet the exact time frames because mm. we think even if there's one learner, one learner in a classroom doesn't have a desk or there's like one school where learners are sharing a toilet, a hundred of them are sharing a toilet. I think that's one too much. It's one too many. It's not fair. It's not fair that these learners have to continue to study under these conditions. So we have a sense of urgency. One government have a sense of urgency on the matter. Can I hear you? So it sounds like things are happening, but just not fast enough and it's just not good enough is what it sounds like. Or I, I was wondering are around the country. So it's yeah. in Gauteng. It does sound like things are happening a little bit. But then I worry about the whole country's um, developments, considering if if the basic education minister can't even release these plans for for how to fix the norms and infrastructure problems, I worry on a national level are things are things developing. We have seen some really really bad schools in the country. We have seen in the Eastern Cape some schools that are on a a mountain and it's just like a shack and. The, and, and these learners study in, in these conditions and there's no toilet and there's no fence and they walk far and they are small little children and the teacher wears like um, an overall because she gets dirty and she would rather wear that in the classroom. So this speaks to also the working conditions of the teachers and mm. speaks to the learners and how they study. We've seen some really bad conditions. And so... Every time there's a delay and every time like things are not happening, that is every minute these learners, when it's raining, can't go to school because the shack leaks. When it's too hot, they have to sit outside because it's just too much. They are overcrowded. They don't have desks. They don't have chairs. They, you know, it's like they don't feel they, they don't feel like their education is being taken seriously. They take the time out to go to school. They are committed to education and government needs to commit to making sure that their education is a quality education and equal to everyone else's in South Africa. Mm. Is it difficult for you personally to be continually exposed to, I guess, 
the extreme challenges of South African students. You know, you have these young people who want to learn and and their education is their future, but then they're, they're facing so many challenges. Is that a difficult thing to continually be engaging with? I mean, I think it's obviously, um, it's, it's not easy to watch, but I imagine that we are just watching. South Africans are just watching when we watch ENCA. We're just seeing footage, but these learners that sit in those classrooms have it far harder than we do. Yeah. Uh, but every day still wake up and go to classroom. And so every time our learners and our members of equal education are marching, we know that it's really from the bottom of their hearts and mm. it's with everything they have. And they, they know, some of them know that they may never, um, they may leave school and never see the changes, but yeah. they know that it has to mm. be like a generational struggle that they have to do something about it. I mean, thank you for keeping, keep, keep, keeping, keeping up the good fight. And I'm just curious what happens next. So you've done the social audits, the results have come out. We're still having delays from the minister's office and the MEC. What's what sort of the next thing that Equal Education is looking towards? Well, we keep at it. Um, Eastern Cape marched um, on Friday, yep. um, demanding the plans again, and we have some sort of promise that they will be released. Okay. And we will monitor um, like we always do mm. um, and keep at it, you know, hold government accountable and our learners are always on the ball. Okay. They're always meeting and trying to do things better. Um, and we have a number of campaigns running um, on scholar transport. So we are really on the ground and trying to make things better in the education system. Okay. And how can people get a hold of you to, to, to either be part of the march or support your work? I mean, how can, how can the rest of us get involved? So you can contact us on, you can tweet at us at equal underscore education, yep. or you can Facebook us at equal education. Or you can email us um, on info at equaleducation.org.za. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Nombulelo, thank you so much for coming on the show, and please keep up the great work. Thank you for having and us. And, of course, a big thank you to my partner in crime, Greg Nicholson. A big thank you. Good to be here again. Fantastic. Please make sure to download the podcast and share it with all your friends. This is the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We will see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.